Welcome to Which Decade is Tots of Pop, Season 2, Episode 9. The Magic Randomizer this week has given us a year suffix of two and a chart position of four, so we'll be looking at records that were number four in the charts on August the 16th in 1962, 1972, all the way through to 2012. And if you want to listen to these tracks in full, you can do so on YouTube at tinyurl.com forward slash whichdecade29y. For Spotify, it's whichdecade29s. For the extra tracks and bonus bits, it's whichdecade29e. Nick and Trev are here with me, and we're going to crash straight into... The 60s! This is The Shadows with Guitar Tango. It was the eighth of 14 top 10 hits that The Shadows had between 1960 and 1965. That included five number ones. And then they had another two top 10 hits in 1978 and 1979. Guitar Tango peaked at this position of number four. It was originally written by a couple of French songwriters with French lyrics. And it was first recorded by Maya Casabianca in 1961. Some more cover versions of that came out later that year. And then a Dutch group called the Jumping Jewels recorded the first instrumental version later in 1961. But the 1962 Shadows version, that became the best-selling version of the tune internationally. It's early 1960s and the world is clamouring for a new sound. And for some, what seems now fairly inexplicable reason, that turned out to be instrumental guitar of which the shadows were by some distance the most successful proponents of this weird jet harrison tony me and burt whedon the shadows-esque twangy instrumental guitar so it is worth pointing out at this point whatever you think of the shadows that if you include the fact that they spent most of this time also being cliff richard's backing group which if you think about it is weird isn't it it's like the east street band having hits in their own right, isn't it, simultaneously to being on tour with Springsteen. So if you include the hits that are accredited to Cliff Richard and the Shadows, there's only Elvis the Beatles, Cliff himself, Ed Sheeran, Westlife and Madonna that have had more number ones than the Shadows in the UK. Absolutely preposterously successful. So, like I do, went back, had a breezy morning listening to the very best of the Shadows. You make your own mind up about the title of that record. And a lot of it, there's a Billy Connolly comedy sketch where he talks about going to a Mexican restaurant and he orders an enchilada or something. And then it turns up and he's like, oh, did you order a chimichanga? And he says, no, I ordered an enchilada. So the waiter goes, oh, and basically just unfolds it and refolds it in a different way. And to me, it sounds like a lot like what the shadows were doing. It was just the same chords in a different order on everything that they did. And if you said to me now, how does Apache go? I would get it mixed up with Foot Tapper or Contiki or Man of Mystery or the magnificently titled Rise and Fall of Flingle Bunt or one of their other hits that all essentially sound the same. Apart from Guitar Tango, now the clue is in the name. It is a tango played on guitar by the Shadows, right? Now, it's difficult to take it seriously because listening to it in 2023... 
It sounds like it's come from the soundtrack of a Puss in Boots film. It's so ridiculous. You know that film Rango, where there's a chameleon ends up in like the Wild West, and there's a little mariachi band of animals in Rango who keep turning up and playing little songs in a mariachi style. And it sounds like that. It sounds like Ennio Morricone got all of his spaghetti Western themes from listening to guitar tango by the shadows it's not even a pop record it's just some blokes playing a tango on the guitar it's the sort of thing you'd get if you went for tapas it's the sort of thing that there'd be a bloke in the background you know on a saturday night playing it while you were eating your chorizo or your albondigas it's not that i don't like it it's that i absolutely cannot take it seriously in any way because it just sounds like it's come from a kid's cartoon spectacularly successful if you want to listen to the shadows is much better than this the only thing that i can think about and it's not really this one so much but it's the sort of 1961 shadows hits the apache the foot tab the kind of the well-known ones i do wonder whether there is something in there that is the start of the path that led us to the james bond theme that that twangy electric guitar sound that the john barry seven were also sort of doing around that time is where vic flick got his twangy guitar solo for the james but you can see hints of it i think in the shadows early stuff but that is about the best thing i could say about it you don't get that from guitar tango unless they made a comedy version of a james bond film where james bond is played by an otter and you know, he's got to save the world from a rogue cactus in the deserts of Guadalajara. I think the twangy guitar sound goes back further than the shadows. I think the originator of the twangy guitar instrumental was actually Dwayne Eddy in the States with uh, stuff like Peter Gunn. And they were subsequently hits in the UK. So John Barry may have been influenced by Dwayne Eddy. So I loved listening to that review. <laughs> I thought it was a real joy. Uh, I will say, as someone who classes himself as a fan of Mexican food, I think comparing an enchilada to a chimichanga is almost as ridiculous as comparing, say, Buster Rhymes to Ironic. Um, <laughs> but, you know, other than that, I love your work. I'm so glad you had what you had to say about that, because I really struggled to know what to say about this at all. I think this is a really tough record to engage the listeners to this podcast to, because I really struggle to engage with it myself. I mean, I guess this is what pop music was before pop music was invented. You know, before this, people went out and bought sheet music, which they then went and stood around the piano and played. Before that, a pop song would be the chance that folk sang whilst they were gathering the harvest and building the Wicker Man. Uh, and before that, well, I mean, popular music was in the north uh, northern soul which is the songs that people sang down in the mines down in the south it was like tchaikovsky and brass bands on the promenade uh, and before that it was just primordial soup i think this is possibly more interesting than primordial soup but i wouldn't put money on it it's okay it's a tango listening to it it feels like this lasts forever i like prog rock okay i like yes Yes, don't do radio edits of songs. They've got tracks that are 27 minutes long, okay? And Gates of Delirium sounds short and truncated in comparison to this piece of music. It just went on forever. And it's actually only like three and a half minutes long or something. I can't remember it. 
it just felt like I'd fallen into a void between the universes, a limbo, uh, a tango limbo. I think the elements of the mariachi are relatively nice. That's not the brassy bits. And with a lot of this type of stuff, it feels like something people who play the guitar would be very impressed with. But I don't play the guitar. I'm just baffled by the fact that this reached number four in the charts. Now, I do think that people who bought this would be as baffled by songs like Children by Robert Miles reaching number one. I think, you know, the subjectivity of music is such that, you know, if you were into this at the time, oh my God, this is pop music, but it's not remotely poppy, is it? I think the brass sections give it some life, but this is background music for an Argentinian restaurant. And I don't go to Argentinian restaurants because the vegetarian option there is chicken. Um, my dad gave me all his seven-inch records and I daren't check whether or not this is in there because I'd be really sad if it is because my dad's musical taste is awesome. All I could take away from this is the phrase, you don't know if you've been tangoed. I just don't. What? It is less than three minutes, but I agree with you. It feels like a lot longer. <laughs> also, on a point of order, I don't think Robert Miles' children did get to number one. It yeah. did not get to number one. I thought it was one of the only instrumental number ones we'd had. Unless, of course, you were listening to the Network chart on a Sunday evening, which may well have sent it to number one because there were actually two rival top 40s. Uh, right, OK, I'm going to Google what the instrumental number ones were, so I'll come back to you with that. Well, Trev, you'll have a long time because I have more to say about The Shadows than I have about any other tune we have ever covered in both seasons of this podcast. So strap yourselves in. Right. First of all, I've got to say, this is a really good episode for me personally, because I've seen five of these acts live. I've interviewed three of them, and one of them has sung their song down the phone to me. Exciting. Obviously, that wasn't any of the shadows, as this is an instrumental version of a French song, which means that once again, we're brushing up against vintage chanson, which is something I never expected to happen so often, but I'm very glad that it's happening. That original vocal version by Maya Casabianca, she was part French, part Israeli, part Moroccan. That's my favourite of all the versions. She's a powerful singer and the arrangement of that, absolute delight. And it's curious because the subsequent instrumental version by The Jumping Jewels is really clearly influenced by The Shadows. So it's a bit weird that The Shadows then decided to record a cover of a Dutch band that was so obviously trying to sound like The Shadows. Peculiar. But the Shadows version adds that Spanish brass. Hank Marvin plays the guitar line in a lower register. Brian Bennett's drumming has a more military feel to it. But overall, it's not that radically different from the Jumping Jewels version. OK, so I took one of my customary deep dives into the Shadows run of 14 top 10 hits. And it was a hugely enjoyable deep dive to take. I think... Hank Marvin is a wonderfully distinctive and accomplished guitarist, and all of it basically sounds marvellous. And yet, when I was younger, the shadows weren't to my taste at all. So I've been thinking about why. Right, so before the Beatles came along, the shadows were the biggest band in Britain. Just about every major classic rock guitarist who broke through in the 60s has acknowledged Hank Marvin as a formative musical influence. And yet, when I was younger, I couldn't hear what was so great about him at all. And I think, having given this a lot of thought, there are several reasons for this. So, firstly, 
My first exposure to Hank Marvin was uh, in the late 60s and the early 70s. He was a regular guest on Cliff Richard's light entertainment shows on the BBC. And at that time, he was always cast as the Joker, the funny one out of the shadows. He goofed around in various comedy sketches. So that did not incline me to take him seriously from the start. And then there were those two comeback hits in the late 70s, which I thought were just utterly ghastly. One was the cover of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. The other one was the cover of the theme from The Deer Hunter. And when I saw old Hank Marvin on TV picking out those melodies on a single string on his guitar, making just ridiculous, what a, what a virtuoso I am faces while he did so, I just found him corny and ridiculous. So that didn't help either. And then... Warming to my point, when I was younger, I was very much brought into the idea that British rock music was constantly evolving from like primitive beginnings, the primordial soup, if you will, to ever greater artistic heights. So when the Beatles replaced the Shadows, I took that as meaning that the Beatles were the better band and there was no point in anyone listening to the Shadows anymore. And then similarly, when the Beatles evolved from Merseybee into the more adventurous music they put out in the late 60s, I thought there wasn't much point in listening to the early Beatles anymore because they had grown into a better band. In fact, I thought the Beatles must have been deeply embarrassed by stuff like From Me To You and I Want To Hold Your Hand. And this feeling continued through psychedelia, through progressive rock, through Yes's Gates of Delirium indeed, until... Punk came along and signalled that none of this was really progress at all and that increasing musical sophistication was actually obliterating a lot of what made rock music good in the first place. But until that point, when I heard The Shadows, I just basically thought, God, how awful it must have been for this lot to have been the biggest band in Britain at some stage and how sad that all those guitar heroes only had corny old Hank Marvin to listen to when they were growing up. I mean, the guy didn't have a fuzz box, for God's sake. And like how early 1960s Britain must be in the absolute dark ages for good music and how wrong I was. The biggest game changer came when I saw The Shadows live in 2009 on their final reunion tour with Cliff Richard. They hadn't performed with Cliff in years. They were never going to do so again. And I really fancied hearing songs from a childhood, like Summer Holiday, Bachelor Boy, The Young Ones. It was a fantastic show. And the best bits were actually when Cliff left the stage and the Shadows got to do their instrumental thing without him with that famous Shadows Walk that lots of glam bands then copied in the 1970s. They didn't play guitar tango that night because of Chet, and perhaps that's an indicator that it's not one of their classics. But I think this is still a delightful recording, and even B-list Shadows are pretty damn fine. So I mentioned Robert Miles' Children being a number one. It's not on the list here, so you're quite right. And the uh, most recent instrumental that was number one was Martin Garrix with Animals. But I have a point of order when it comes to these songs that are number one, that are instrumentals, okay? There's only 30. The Shadows are in this list 57 times. But then we get up to Albatross, Fleetwood Mackiette, and then there's Royal Strutts, Amazing Grace, Smell the Old Doe, eye level which i don't know and i think there's only two after this that are actually instrumentals so you got eye level simon part i don't know that it is instrumental yeah then dupe by dupe yep has someone going do 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 
which call me mental. I don't think vocal scatting makes for an instrumental. The Chemical Brothers, back for another block rocking beat, says back for another block rocking beat. Mm. That's not an instrumental. Right, then you've got Flat Beat by Mr. Wazzo. Absolutely an instrumental. ATB, 9 p.m. till I come as an instrumental. Wow. 9 p.m. till I come. That's what she says. She says the title. Crazy Frog, Axel F. The lyrics might not be Scatman John level genius, but that's not an instrumental. And I'm pretty sure Mint Royale Singing in the Rain had a sample of Singing in the Rain in it. It's not a very good song. Uh, I can't believe it was number one, but there you go. Mint Royale, I've got loads better tracks than that. Martin Garrix, Animals. I think it actually says we're the in animals as well in it. Oh, certainly the club version said we are the effing animals, and I don't mean funky animals. We are the loving animals. Yeah, we are the loving animals. And also, can I just say, ATB nine pm till I come always sounded to me like the voice wasn't saying till I come. It always sounded like the voice was saying, "Do you like cock?" And once you've heard it that way, you will never hear it any other way i'm also going to take issue i'm going to go back to 1958 and take issue with lord rockingham 11's hoots mon being oh, instrumental yeah. because they literally go hoots mon there's a moose loose about this hoose that's not an instrumental either yeah that was the one in the um the wine gums advert yeah. wasn't it is this list from a reputable source it's from wikipedia wikipedia oh <laughs> uh, we've unearthed a scandal it could be someone trolling us but it's pretty deep level troll i know what i'll do i'll edit the instrumental number ones on wikipedia to include some tracks that just have vocal samples in oh, lol whoever that is whoever's done that you got me i bet you pound as well that if you heard it you'd know eye level by the simon park orchestra it's the theme from Vandervalk. Oh, yes. I've got that on my theme tunes folder. Non-stop theme tune bangers in the event that I should need to play some theme tunes, which happens more often than you'd think. One of only two tunes that I can play on the recorder, eye level. Oh, no, three tunes I can play on the recorder. Eye level, Amazing Grace and the theme from Zed Cars are my repertoire on the recorder. So you can't play Guitar Tango by The Shadows on recorder because I think that would be more interesting to listen to. That is not a challenge I'm going to take up, thank you. <laughs> I could play 9pm till I come on the recorder, but then occasionally I have to take the recorder out of my mouth to say the words. Like, do you like cock? Are we still in the 60s? Shall we move on? <laughs> Here come. The 70s! This is Donny Osmond with Puppy Love. It was the first of six solo top ten hits that Donny had between 1972 and 1973, and it was his first of three number ones. And then he had one more top ten hit in 2004. He also had two top tens with Marie Osmond in 1974, and with his brothers as the Osmonds, he's had another five top tens between 72 and 75 and that included one number one add all those up and donny has appeared on 14 uk top 10 hits puppy love was originally number two hit in the states for paul anchor in 1960 but his version only reached 33 in the uk and the version by s club juniors also reached number six in December 2002. So because the 60s one just confused me a bit, uh, I was hoping we would have a Mike Atkinson trademarked classic track 70s banger here. 
and it's certainly a well-known tune. This is genuine. For quite a while, I actively confused Donny Osmond with Ozzy Osbourne. No! Um, <laughs> they both gained fame with the band before going on to solo success. Their names are quite similar, and they have both managed their public images very, very well. Uh, and, of course, they both bit the head off a bat live on stage. But for ages, when people were talking about the Osbournes, I was, like, thinking... That puppy love guy. What's going on? Well, they both do have very strong religious leanings. Fair enough. Only one's a Mormon and the other one's a Satanist. So this sounds like it's from the 60s, I think. It sounds like it's a female-led pop song from the 60s. There were loads of tunes that I think sound exactly like this. If I didn't know it was Donny, I probably would have thought it was Last Singing. I think it's well-written. I thoroughly enjoyed watching Tony Blackburn, dressed as Robin Hood for <laughs> some reason, introduce Donny and his backing group, dressed as late Elvis for some reason, uh, mime their way through this on top of the pops. And it was a nice snapshot of the cheesy 1970s. And I think it gets a pass for me on this. Even though it's not a novelty song, it gets a thumbs up as a novelty tune. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not novelty, but it's kind of novelty. There's loads of songs that I think are a bit like this. Baby Love, My Boy Lollipop, Do You Think I'm Sexy? and Rain in Blood by Slayer. You know, they're sort of novelty, but not novelty. I'm, I'm not listening to this on my own, but it's a once a year shout, particularly in the modern way of consuming music. Alexa Play, I think actually this is quite a nice tune. Oh, do you know what? Once a year, Alexa Play, my boy Lollipop. Alexa Play. Trev, you are wreaking havoc with the smart speakers of our listeners right now. Sorry. <laughs> Come back. Stop listening. To... Alexa, stop playing my boy Lollipop. Alexa, play all of DJ Trev's back catalogue. He could really use the two pence. If I had an Alexa and once a year it played Puppy Love, I'd throw it out the window. So um, the first thing is, as you sort of identify there, Mike, it takes a few minutes of a sort of careful writing down notes to try and understand the timeline of the Osmonds, because he was simultaneously having hits as Donny Osmond, Donny and Marie Osmond and the Osmonds sort of contemporaneously. It's a bit like Blur and and the Gorillas and the Good, the Bad and the Queen all being out at the same time, sort of. It's a little bit confusing. So what I did again, I make a playlist of their UK singles in chronological order. The best thing that happened when I did that the other day is that there's a beautiful moment about three or four tracks in where you can hear Donny Osmond's voice break because the end of one song goes into the start of the next one and you're like, oh, hello there, his voice appears to have broken. Interesting, talked about this in the 70s, how there was this revival of 50s stuff. We talked about it with the darts, didn't we, that they were doing this kind of revival, shawaddy waddy. And this is essentially doing the same thing, isn't it? Just of a different genre. He's doing Puppy Love, The Twelfth of Never. He has a hit with Nat King Cole's When I Fall in Love. So he's basically just doing the same thing, just recycling 50s stuff. But he's just obviously chosen a different, well, I doubt if he's chosen, somebody has chosen for him. I would have thought, a different genre of stuff to work with. So when it came up on the thing, you think Puppy Love by Donny Osmond, right? Everyone knows that. Oh, and you think, oh, I haven't heard that for years. It's a little bit of fun. But having heard it uh, more than once in the last few days, I actually ended up finding it quite cloying and quite annoying. The novelty of it and hearing it again wore off incredibly quickly. And then you're just left with some fairly naff production it was obviously selling records, as records have done since time immemorial, 
because he's a handsome teen idol. We're sort of in David Cassidy land here, aren't we? We're not far off the Bay City Rollers arriving. So the new wave of 70s teen idols are ushered in probably by Donny Osmond arriving. Was he 15 when he did this? 14. 14 when he recorded Puppy Love. So clearly there's a lot of units being shifted for that reason because the Osmonds hadn't had a hit by this point. Crazy Horses uh, was released in the autumn of 1972. So they'd had a minor, just scraped the top 40 hits. So the Osmonds weren't big. So he wasn't coming in on the back of the Osmonds. The, the Osmonds ended up actually being quite a fertile ground for the late 90s, early 2000s manufactured boy bands. Because, I mean, Boyzone obviously did Love Me For A Reason and OTT had a hit with Let Me In. Um, S Club Juniors, as you say, took this to the top 10. It feels to me like the perfect song for S Club Juniors to sing. It's weedy, childish, slightly overproduced. So nothing against it and nothing against Donny Osmond as an artist. I think Crazy Horses is magnificent. This, though, a bit like Trev, I ended up finding it quite cloying and quite novelty and quite annoying quite quickly. Well, if you take all the various permutations of the Osmond clan, um, so that's also including little Jimmy Osmond and Marie Osmond, both of them had solo hits as well, the clan collectively notched up 25 top 40 hits between 72 and 76, which is a massive total for those days. Puppy Love, yeah, that was their family's big breakthrough in the UK. But my sister and I were already aware of them because we'd seen them on TV at a Royal Variety performance earlier in the year before Down by the Crazy River grazed the top 40 after that performance. And we were both instantly and Utterly captivated by Donny. He was energetic, charming, feisty, funny, and very cute. Please note, I was 10, Donny was 14. It was an age-appropriate crush to have at the time. Thank you. But I was disappointed by Puppy Love when that became a hit and by most of Donny's later solo hits because, yeah, they were far too syrupy and soppy and lovey-dovey and girly for my tastes. I didn't like the fact most of them were covers of songs from around 20 years earlier either. I much preferred him with the rest of the Osmond brothers who went initially from like Jackson 5 style pop soul into a more rock based style. All of that was much more up my street. Meanwhile, my sister became a huge Osmonds fan. She joined the fan club. She bought T-shirts. She bought badges. She bought posters. She even bought an Osmonds official lampshade. And she had all the Donny albums and all the Osmonds albums. So I lived in an Osmonds world for a couple of years. She did have the good sense to claim that she only liked them for their music because she knew I'd tease her something rotten if she admitted that she really fancied Donny. But all that schmaltzy balladry that, yeah, he was presumably instructed to record, it put me right off him. My own crush withered on the vine very quickly. Right, fast forward to 2007. And I am on the phone to actual Donny Osmond. I'm interviewing in advance of a solo show in Nottingham, and he gives a great interview. He's thoughtful, sincere, hugely charming, even down the phone. We talk about puppy love. And he tells me there was a period in his career where he was mortified by it and he refused to perform it. I'd rather have died than do puppy love again, he says. And then he says this, and I'll give you the full quote. He says, on this tour, this was 2007, on this tour, I do several different versions of Puppy Love. I even say, hey, I'm pushing 50, you guys, and I'm still singing Puppy Love. What's wrong with this picture? I say, look, I've tried to infuse maturity into it, change it up over the years. And so I do a short little country version of it, a sexy Barry White version of it, 
a Blackpool-style lounge lizard version of it. And then I finally say, you know, there's only one way to sing Puppy Love. And they called it Puppy Love. And that is when I realise that actual Donny Osmond is singing actual Puppy Love to me down the phone. And a bit of me is just swooning from the sheer thrill of it. And another bit of me is thinking, I cannot wait to tell my sister what just happened. I reviewed that 2007 show in Nottingham. I took my sister to see it with me as my plus one. And another very exciting thing happened. During one song, it was a Neil Sedaka song, he stepped down from the stage and he walked the entire length of the stalls from front to back by stepping across the backs of our seats while still singing the Neil Sedaka song. And about three rows ahead of us, he changed direction and he headed straight towards my sister and she had for safety's sake to take donnie's hands and help him across our road safely after which she squealed to me i've pumped donny osmond and then this is not over and then in 2013 i reviewed him again a bigger venue it was a bigger venue because he was performing with marie that time and again he walked through the audience this time it was while singing the 12th of never and this time he went right past us. He kissed the woman to my left, who was a massive fan. We'd been chatting and he did a high five with the chap on my right, who, if I'm not mistaken, was none other than our very own Nick Parkhouse. Am I right? I don't think so. Did you not come to see Donnie and Marie? I have never been touched inappropriately by Donny Osmond. I would like you to leave that in the edit. <laughs> it wasn't inappropriate about a high five. That's the most appropriate touching you can ever have. I can't think of a more appropriate touch than a high five at a concert. I think I would know if I'd high five Donny Osmond. That That is a phrase I didn't think I would say today. <laughs> there is absolutely no chance it was me because I've never been to a gig with you. But tell people it were me. I'll have that. I thought, yeah, I once got high five by Donny Osmond. I love that. No, hang on a minute. Trev is absolutely right here. Wait there. Yeah, that absolutely was me. That was one of the highlights of my life, Mike. I got to high five Donny Osmond. Well, the Amazing. thing is, I can't think what other male friend I'd have taken with me to see Donny and Marie. I mean, it's be a short list of one. Thing is, he snubbed me. Kiss for the woman on the right. High five to my mysterious male companion on on the other side. Just walked past me. He thought I've done enough for Mike over the years. Yeah, uh, okay, puppy love. Yeah, I've come round to it in later life, much as Donny Osmond himself came round to it in later life. Yeah, it's no pop classic, but it's got that sort of yearning potency that I can't deny, and a whole set of associated memories that give it a special place in my affections. I'm glad you mentioned what he's like in an interview because I've heard some of his interviews recently, and he does, he sounds like someone who he, he knows his worth, he knows what he is, and absolutely buys into it, leans into it, and does it really, really well. Yeah. Uh, I think I've worked out exactly when I realised Donny Osborne and Ozzy Osbourne weren't the same person. Uh, and it was when Crazy by Ozzy Osbourne came out, because I remember someone asking for it and me thinking, did they mean crazy horses? <laughs> they didn't say anything. I was like, oh, I've not got it yet, mate. Went home and then went, oh, right, yeah, this all makes a lot more sense. Um, what I do think is really interesting, as a snapshot of the 70s, this is 70s teen pop icons. And the closest to wholesome you get really now for teen pop icons would be like Justin Bieber singing a song about literally going and f***ing yourself. 
you know, and that's the lovely music for teens that we're making. Or, you know, like H, uh, not H from Steps, but H the rapper, you know, singing a song about essentially fingering girls and how much he likes it. That's why I kind of like this one certainly more than Nick, because this is pretty wholesome stuff. Would you like the uh, history of dogs in the top 40? Go on then. <laughs> yes. I know which one I'm waiting for, but let's see whether you mention it. Puppy love. Paul Anker, Donny Osmond, S Club Juniors, as you say. Now, there's also the puppy song by David Cassidy, and I think I thought for a long time they were the same thing, but they're not, are they? The puppy song is not puppy love. So, Shaker Stevens, Hot Dog, Bird Dog by the Everly Brothers, Hound Dog, obviously Elvis, uh, Dog Train by the Levelers, Dog Eat Dog, Adam and the Ants, Walking the Dog by the Denisons, Shoot the Dog by George Michael, and I Love My Dog by Cat Stevens. You've got uh, Matchdog Men and Matchdog Cats and Dogs, Brian and Michael, Bean Training Dogs, by the Cooper Temple Claws. Singing Dogs by the Singing Dogs. Who let the dogs out? Woo, 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 woo. I thought that was what Mike was waiting for. No. What's Mike waiting for? You haven't said it yet. Dogs of Lust by the The. Diamond Dogs, Bowie, Dogs by the Who, Beware of the Dog by Jamelia. Is that the one you're waiting for, Mike? No. Nope. Dog Days Are Over by Florence and the Machine. Hot Diggity Dog Ziggity Boom by Perry Como. Uh, Love Me, Love My Dog by Peter Shelley. Me, You and a Dog Named Boo by Lobo, uh, Walking My Cat Named Dog by Norma Tanega. What a bop that is. I've Got a Little Puppy by the Smurfs. Yes, that's the one I wanted. It's the cover of um, I Want to Be a Hippie, Technohead. How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? Doggy Dog World by Snoop Dogg. And I believe this song still holds the record for the longest song title ever to have made the UK top 40. Oh, uh, yeah. there's a little fact for you by Rod Stewart and the Small yeah. Faces, and it's called You Can Make Me Dance, Sing or Anything, Even Take the Dog for a Walk, Mend a Fuse, Fold Away the Ironing Board or Any Other Domestic Shortcomings. I can't believe you weren't waiting for the Baha men who let the dogs out. I no. had to put money on that. No. As a fan of Technohead, I'm going to have to check out the Smurfs. Uh, I've got a little puppy because I really hope that does justice to the original. It's magnificent. I'll put it on the extras playlist so all our listeners can bop along. Wholesome. Here come... This is Don't Go by Yazoo. It was the second of three top tens that they had just between 1982 and 1983, and it peaked at number three. Yazoo, as I'm sure nearly everybody knows, were Alison Moyet on vocals, Vince Clark, formerly of Depeche Mode, on keyboards. They formed in late 1981, recorded two albums, and then broke up just 18 months later in May 83, before the second album had even been released. And then they later reunited in 2008 for a one-off international tour. After Yazoo, Vince Clark formed Eurasia with Andy Bell. As Eurasia, they had 17 top 10 hits between 86 and 2005. And Alison Moyet got six top 10 hits between 1984 and 1987. So here's, again, one of those brilliant songs that I don't have an awful lot to say about. They were around for such a short period of time. They found each other by accident. So Vince Clark had left Depeche Mode and answered an ad that Alison Moyet had put. It turns out they went to school together or they lived very close to one another. Alison Moyet was looking for a blues band that needed a singer and obviously they got together and just one of those incredible happy accidents where it just works. 
Alison Moy is just phenomenal. I think I last saw Alison Moy, she supported Tears for Fears a couple of years ago when I saw them in Nottingham and just still sounds magnificent. Vince Clark, if you listen to Upstairs at Eric's, which is the first Yazoo album, a lot of it sounds a lot like what he had just done with Depeche Mode. If you listen to Don't Go, it's not a million miles away from something like Just Can't Get Enough, which I think was the last of the hits he wrote for Depeche Mode. So the synth stuff is similar. I think you can tell it's the same person. So originally, only really ever designed to be an album. They were just going to make one album. It was just a little project. And then they got sort of talked into the second album, by which time they weren't really talking to one another. He was recording his bits in the morning. She was recording the vocals in the evening. And as you say, it all ended quite quickly. So what they did do from a singles point of view, they had only like three or four singles, but all fantastic. Don't Go is it's a brilliant little record, isn't it? Nobody's Diary, I love. Situation, I know it wasn't, was re-released in the 90s, is also a brilliant song. And then, of course, we come to Only You. And now Only You is, and this is a bold claim for the sort of music that I like, I would say Only You is in my top 10 songs of the 1980s. I just think it is an absolutely incredible piece of work. The melody is fantastic. I think she is I can't imagine anybody. Well, I've heard other people sing it and it's no, you know, James Corden and Kylie Minogue. Welcome. And it just loses all of its magic. If you were looking for a gig where you did take a plus one, it might have been Yazoo because I absolutely did see them when they reformed in 2000, whenever it was at the Royal Concert Hall in Nottingham. 2008. Yeah. Were they supported by propaganda? Ah, right. They were supported by, they were called One Two. And it was a synth duo. The singer was Claudia Brooken from Propaganda. And the keyboard player was the one out of OMD that wasn't Andy McCluskey. His name escapes me. Paul Humphreys. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, Duel by Propaganda, we'll never talk about because it never made the top 10. But what a song that is, by the way. Anyway, so yes, love Yazoo. It's a great album. I had a great fun listening to it again the other day upstairs. Eric's is a magnificent piece of work. Don't Go is an absolutely brilliant single. A big thumbs up. This is my favourite type of stuff from the 1980s, really. And the 1980s is a decade that has a lot of music to offer me. There's loads of styles that I really like. During the 80s, I think Rare Groove kept disco soul alive all the way up to house music. And I think synth pop like this kept the four to the floor, dancing around your handbag vibes going again up until house music turned up. You know, house music was sort of really where I probably started paying attention. See, slightly before my time, but I, it's one of those songs that I've always been aware of. And it's almost perfect pop music for me. I was pretty sure that Vince Clark was behind almost everything in the 1980s. I certainly thought he was behind the Communards and Bronsky beat too. But even so, he was pretty prolific. His keyboard led bangers like this are the drive for what I like of 1980s pop. I think they've got as much to do with modern dance music as people like Nile Rodgers and Quincy Jones had. At the end of this, as a DJ, it either adds a phrase or drop one, which makes it really difficult to mix out because it's, it's quite hard to describe this. All time signatures for music are unfortunately written incorrectly. So it doesn't mean it stops being 4-4. It carries on being 4-4. There's just either an extra one of those four fours or one too few. And I, just, I mean, I've been playing this for years and I still can't work it out. It's one of the many, many minefields that us DJs have to navigate within our work, you know, such as choosing what t-shirt to wear, why we cost so much. And 
are worth so much more. You get to the end of this fine, fine piece of music and then you go, I'll, I'll play something else now. And then either they just play a bit one time more or one time two less and she starts singing again and it all goes to absolute crap and you've got to stand there looking like you meant that. And I don't think I've ever successfully mixed out of this. I think they're always train wrecks. I do play it regularly. Can't get out of it. Come and listen to me. You'll almost certainly hear me fail dramatically to get out of it. Don't stop me loving it, though. I think it's an absolute 80s banger. I hadn't spotted the extra bar or missing bar or whatever in Don't Go, but it is a common feature of 80s high energy in particular. High energy uses that trick an awful lot. They'll add an extra bar for emphasis to kind of get to the next bit. A very obvious example is Pet Shop Boys Always On My Mind. It breaks up the 4-4 tempo. I know this because I've been rehearsing for a high energy gig in uh, Nottingham in a couple of months' time. So I've been checking the songs really carefully because it can totally throw you out. Yeah, right. This is where my Donny Osmond bragging, right? Step up a few notches because I've told you I've seen Puppy Love performed twice. Well, I've seen Don't Go performed live four times, twice by Alison Moyer on her own. Both times that was the final encore of the show. Actually, at the end of the first show, she did the final encore and she announced that Yazoo were going to reform later in the year and nobody knew in the audience and it was quite a moment. And then I saw it that Yazoo 2008 reunion tour twice on consecutive nights, the first time reviewing it, and Nick was my plus one in Nottingham. And then as a paid gig, I went to Wolverhampton the next night, and I was on the front row for that, actually. And it was penultimate song in their set both times. I've interviewed Alison Moyer. I've interviewed Vince Clark twice. Uh, first time in 2007, he was in Erasure then. Yazoo were not mentioned at all. But then just a year later, I got to speak to him again. They were just about to start rehearsing for the Yazoo tour. And at that point, Erasure barely got a mention. Granted, there has been no physical contact between any of us to date, but I was on the front row for that second Yazoo show in Wolverhampton. So, you know, I was within spitting distance, basically. So there's a standard question that The Guardian at the weekend asks celebrities for their weekly Q&A feature, and that's, who would you invite to your dream dinner party? Well, in my case, the term dream dinner party is something of an oxymoron, as I do my level best to avoid dinner parties at all times. I'd rather meet my friends down the pub. But if that question was, which celebrities would you invite down the pub, then based on the interviews I've done, my stock answer has always been three people. Phil Oakey from the Human League, Wilco Johnson, obviously that's no longer possible, and Alison Moyer. She was an absolute delight to talk to. I was a blogger at the time. That's how I got into music journalism. She just started her own blog. We had a really interesting discussion about blogging at the start of the interview. And after the interview, she added my blog to her own blog role on her blog. So that's another bragging right. Don't worry. The rest of the episode does not carry on like this. We have reached peak blag at this stage. It's downhill from here. As for Vince Clark, he had a few interesting things to say about that lack of rapport between himself and Alison. And I've got some quotes from what he actually said to me. 
Alison was saying the other week, we never actually played each other records while we were recording. We never really talked about music. We weren't friends when we made those records. We didn't have a real relationship. We lacked the skills of communication. So that's why the group didn't last. We were 21 and I think we were a bit paranoid. In the course of being together, we never went out for a drink and we never did anything social. We just did the work. Because we weren't able to express any problems that might have arisen with each other, that's when it all went pear-shaped. And at the time he said that, Vince and Alison had only met up with each other once. That was two weeks earlier. And that was the first time in 15 years. Gives you another indication of the depth of that estrangement. Now, all of that, I think, makes Yazoo's music all the more remarkable because it doesn't really sound to me like the work of two people who didn't get along together. Yeah, you've got two contrasting personalities. You've got the blues singer, you've got the synth pop guy, but those personalities blend together in such a way that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And for all the excellent stuff, both of them are released for many years after Yazoo. I still like their work as Yazoo best of all. Yeah, don't go one of their more club-friendly tracks. That's along with two of their B-sides, Situation, later re-released and remixed, and State Farm, B-side of Nobody's Diary. In the USA, all three of those got to number one on the Billboard dance charts. They didn't know it at the time, as I asked, but what they were doing from a pop perspective in the UK, not talking to each other in Basildon, that was actually helping to shape the direction that dance music was heading in the US with the parallel emergence of both high energy and electro funk round about that time. Soulful female vocals over an up-tempo electronic backing. That was almost non-existent in 1982, unless you can't I Feel Love from 77. By the end of the decade, it would be everywhere. So as well as being a great record, it was also a pioneering record. I've never stopped listening to it. I've never stopped enjoying it. They were Yaz in the US, weren't they? There were. There was already some acts called Yazoo. So it was Yaz, but it was Yaz with one Z. So there was no conflict with Yaz with two Zs when she came along at the end of the 80s. Trev, you never thought that Yazoo and Yaz and the Plastic Population had anything to do with each other then? Because I was expecting you to say that. No, I didn't. I did frequently have sort of bizarre confusions with the Yazoo, Only You, and the Flying Pickets, Only You. Number one version, yeah. Yeah, that one's totally a cappella. And I think that was the first one that I got to and then backtracked to Yazoo. I remember someone talking to me about, oh, you know, like really amazing intelligent synth-led pop music like Only You. And I'm I'm thinking <laughs> about these guys in check shirts stood around a microphone on top of the pop. I'm like going, wow, they really dropped the synths back in that mix there, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Am I right in thinking that the Flying Pickets Only You features in a book about forgotten hits of the 1980s by Nick, what's his name? Is that right? I think you'll find that chapter covers both versions. Ah. Right then, next decade time, here come... This is The Best Things in Life are Free by Luther Vandross and Janet Jackson. Also featuring special guests, Bell Biv DeVoe and Ralph Tresvant. All of them were ex-New Edition. They got to number one with Candy Girl in 1983. The only missing member was Bobby Brown because he was too famous. It was the ninth of 18 top 40s for Luther Van Dross from 87 to 2004. It peaked at number two. So that was Luther's highest charting hit. 
a remix by K-Class then peaked at number seven in 1995. Luther only ever had one other top 10 hit. That was another duet, and that was with Mariah Carey. As for Janet Jackson, it was a fourth of 15 top 10s from 86 to 2002. So joint highest hit along with That's the Way Love Goes. And they were Grammy nominated for this for Best R&B Performance by a duo or group with vocals. Right. There are loads of different versions of this track. But the version that was the lead track on the UK 7-inch single, the UK CD single, and indeed the all-important UK cassette single, was the five-and-a-half-minute British remix by CJ McIntosh, known as CJ's UK 7-inch with rap. That's on the YouTube playlist. Took a lot of finding. On Spotify, you've only got the full-length 10-minute extended version of the CJ McIntosh remix. So if you're listening on Spotify, don't have to listen to 10 minutes. If you fade around five and a half minutes, you've basically heard the seven-inch version. Just need you to clear that up. Uh, I did struggle a little bit to find the right version, and it got to a point where I kind of stopped caring. Um, I went with the version that's got an opening from a film that this was in, and I just assumed it's right, and it's the version that I do play out. In the 1990s, dance music took over the world, really, for better or for worse, and I think it actually started with stuff like this. Rave had been important. But the bands that came out of Rave, the bands like The Prodigy and Alternate, they didn't completely change the world of music just then. Acid House was important, but likewise, it was this type of thing. It's essentially very, very commercial house music. If this had been by someone like Brothers in Rhythm, you wouldn't be surprised. K-Class, who you mentioned, yeah, you could absolutely go. It's got strings. It's got a bit of a sort of rap in there, which you could possibly live without. It's got uplifting vocals. It's uplifting lyrical content. There's David Morales, who is a great house producer, did some remixes that were called classic club mixes. Probably most famously, Jamiroquai's Space Cowboy. So big that even Jamiroquai doesn't know how the original actually goes to that. And this is in that zone of very, very safe, four to the floor, quite obvious house music. There's no edge to it, but there's absolutely a place for it. And that place is in town centre nightclubs that were called Night Spots. Night was spelt N-I-T-E. And outside it would say top DJs in inverted commas. Now I'm someone who's made a living as a top DJ. So it would be totally remiss of me to hate this. It's the classic town centre mainstream club sound. And I think it's producers who've been making slightly deeper stuff. Todd Terry dabbled in these types of things. There's loads and loads of house DJs down the years who've done it to varying degrees of success. But it was people who were looking at the charts and going, hang on a minute, what are we doing? Well, you know, we're noodling away on the underground. Let's get some actual units shifted. And, yeah, you know, they've got Janet Jackson and Luther Vandross, two very, very big names here. It would have been hard to go wrong with it played it right down the middle it's an absolute win it's the soundtrack to putting on your school shoes because trainers weren't allowed in nightclubs at that time smoking consulate cigarettes so that your mum wouldn't smell it on your breath i think there's stuff that's got a little bit more to it things like m people moving on up the ream things can only get better i I think jamiroquai's space cowboy the club classic mix of that is slightly better than this but there's not much wrong with this. As I say, it's uplifting, it's positive, it's club music, moving out of clubs where you took ecstasy, essentially, and moving into 
clubs where you drink and it's nice and it's happy i actually think a better comparison for this tune is robin s show me love because that tune absolutely massive but it's the mix on it that is so very very important the production on this is massive to it lyrically vocally they're great singers aren't they they're not really to my tastes but they've done all right haven't they Luther and Janet I understand but it's the club feel to this that makes this what it is I do think it's very beige really it's perfectly fine and it's very very well done and what it's well done is making a tune that is a bit page and is really acceptable and accessible and mainstream and you know they've absolutely scored with it they've stuck this down the middle and have got a win. Rev, it's interesting that you mentioned David Morales there and the classic mixes, because if the version you were listening to is the version I think you were listening to, did it have a video with clips from the film Mo Money? Yeah, is that the Morales one? Yeah. That is the lead track on the US CD single version. It was the lead track in the US, and it's the classic 12-inch mix. It's a remix by Frankie Knuckles and David Morales. thought so. So I listened to the other one. So it's not got the straight 4-4. It's got that Bobby Brown R&B hip-hop style electro type thing to it, hasn't it? The original version on the soundtrack LP is pure New Jack Swing. It's very different. Yeah. yeah. So we're in the early 90s. We're in the orbit here of um, Jam and Lewis, aren't we? So for five years, ten years, we're probably as, as successful a songwriting and a production team as, as you could find. Everything from Human League, Human to George Michael Monkey and everything in between, probably most successful with people like Janet Jackson, Colour Me Bad, that sort of thing. It was a slightly funny place, the charts of 1992. There wasn't sort of any particular overriding genre that was everything in the charts sounded like this. As you say, Mike, this is as near to number one as both Luther and Janet Jackson got in the UK. Kept off number one by Rhythm is a Dancer, which was obviously a bit of a summer tune. Just behind it, the charts this week, was Achy Breaky Heart. You've also got Ebenezer Good just around the corner. John Cicada, Just Another Day, what a track that was. It was all sorts of weird and wonderful things going around in this era. I am, generally speaking, not really a fan of this style of R&B. I'm not a massive Luther fan, not really a massive Janet Jackson fan either. But for me, this was my last summer at home, 1992. I was leaving home in the summer of 1992 and heading off. So this, to me, reminds me just of that last summer with your school friends, before the whole thing finishes and everybody goes your separate way. And for that point of view, it is fresh sounding to this day, like summer banger. I don't super love it, but I do really appreciate how good it sounds, even 30 years later on. I think what I also like about it, it's a proper duet, isn't it? These days there's a lot of feats, isn't there? But there's not really a lot of what you would call a sort of old-fashioned duet, and the way that the vocals kind of dance around each other and the sort of call and response and the bit where he says Janet and she goes, Luther. It sounds like they were in the same room while they were recording it, you know, in a way that you would hope that a duet would be made. And I'm sure they weren't. I mean, I very much doubt it. But at least it gives you the impression that it's two people doing it together and it's like a proper collaborative duet. Uh, we talked about Gerald Easy on many more occasions than his talent deserves. And it does feel a little like they've done that slightly late 2000s thing where they've got a renter rapper in to do the rap bit in the middle. But it does feel a little bit unnecessary. It does feel a little bit like, oh, who's Jesse J got this time? Oh, it's 
It's Snoop Dogg this time. Good. So I'm not sure it really needed it because I think it's a really perfectly serviceable and breezy R&B song in its own right. I don't super love it, but I do think it does stand the test of time. And I do think it still sounds pretty good now. I think the weirdest thing about this song is there's actually no definitive version of it. You've got different sectors of people who have only heard one version and have never heard the other version. So you've got the original New Jack Swing soundtrack LP version. That is by far and away the most Spotify streams internationally, way ahead of the other versions. The classic 12-inch version, the Knuckles and Morales remix, that accompanied the video in the US, way fewer. The CJ McIntosh UK remix, which was the main mix over here that got it to number two, barely has any streaming numbers on Spotify at all. I hadn't heard the LP version, the new Jack Swing version, in over 30 years. It was actually on the UK 12-inch, which I bought at the time, but I never played that. I went straight to the CJ McIntosh. I can't wrap my ears around the original at all. I guess that was the backing track that Luther and Janet heard in the studio when they recorded the song. But to me, it just sounds like a really dodgy and ill-advised New Jack Swing remix that loses all of the fluidity and the beauty and the grace and the joy of the UK version. Yeah, okay, it's produced by the legendary Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, but the vocals are mixed too low, the percussion is mixed too high, it all sounds awkwardly mechanical. Then again, most new Jack Swing sounds awkwardly mechanical these days. It is not a genre that has worn well, and there is very little Jam and Lewis stuff that I can make land when I'm DJing on a Friday. Now, once again, I have seen this song perform live. This time, just by Luther. I don't think Luther and Janet ever performed it live unless they did something at the Grammys, but Luther performed it at Birmingham NEC 1994. He was supported by Elita Adams, who kind of eclipsed him that night. I loved Elita Adams. The problem with the Luther show is that I prefer his more, comparatively more, up-tempo stuff. Never too much. Um, I really didn't mean it. My sensitivity gets in the way. This show was all about the gloopy, syrupy ballads. When it, it dragged terribly. And the people sitting to our right just yacked all the way through the entire show. And I was too timid to tell them to shut up, as I should have done. However, Luther redeemed himself because he finished the set with Best Things in Life for Free. And it was accompanied by thousands of fake dollar bills cascading from the ceiling of the NEC. So I did go home happy. That's three songs in a row on this episode that I've seen performed live. There aren't any more. I also danced to this song on the fourth plinth at Trafalgar Square in September 2009 as part of Anthony Gormley's art installation project. I don't know if you recall this. The, the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square goes to different artists and they have a few months of putting whatever they want on the fourth plinth. And Anthony Gormley came up. Anthony, Angel of the North, Gormley. They would have expected him to do a sculpture. He said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get members of the public in one-hour slots, 24 hours a day for the entire period I've got the plinth, go up on that plinth for an hour and do whatever they want. That is my art. That is my living sculpture. So one evening at about 7 o'clock in 2009, I became living art. And what I decided to do was have a silent disco. 
So I'd made a mix in advance, an exactly one hour to the second long mix in advance. I had it on my iPod, because it was the age of the iPod, on the plinth. I'd made the mix available on SoundCloud to friends and family who were beneath the plinth and to all the people that were watching it streamed live because it went out live. You could watch the stream. We were actually hooked on the stream for weeks. And I had a lot of readers. My blogs, all my blog readers were there. And at the beginning, when I get up on the plinth, I kind of go three, two, one, go. And I hold up the URL and everybody presses play simultaneously on the mix. So we all have a silent disco to the same tunes for an hour. And I'm dancing up there. But if you don't have your headphones on, you won't hear the music. Anyway, this song was on my mix. It was after Where Love Lives, Alison Limerick, and it went into You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester. And it was my favourite transition of the entire mix because I overlay the intro to Sylvester halfway through the rap. And by the way, I love that rap. Love it. Almost no word for word. Halfway through the rap where they go, more money, more money, Luther Janet, here we go. I whack up the tempo, in comes Sylvester, and whoosh, we're into You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. I love this song so much, I cannot even begin to express myself. It is an essential part of my musical DNA. I still play it out fairly regularly. It always works. That and Together Again are the only two Janet tracks I can make work. I danced to it a lot of the time. I danced to it in gay clubs. It was huge in gay clubs. I danced to it in New York City. Friday night in New York City, I went to the Sound Factory Bar where Frankie Knuckles was DJing. Heard it then. Saturday night, I went to the Roxy, which was the biggest gay club in Manhattan. Heard it again there. So I've got all these associations with it. Final little brag, but I am on the downward slope of brag here. A few years ago, I bought some vinyl off none other than CJ McIntosh on Discogs. And I couldn't resist messaging him and saying, thank you so much for your remix of The Best Things in Life for Free. It's one of my all-time favourite tracks. And he replied... Well, I haven't played that for years. End of brag. You think it's the end of the brags, but you don't know that I was married to the artist from the 2000s for four years. So. <laughs> we were talking about remixes, and there's a link with Bobby Brown, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, because I think the best-known version of Bobby Brown 2 could play that game is a K-Class remix, yeah. which is similar era, similar techniques, everything that's there. It's just that, there you go, strings and pianos and... The K-Class remix of Luther and Janet is also pretty good. It's not a million miles away from other two versions that we've heard, Trev. Okay, time to move into the next century then. Here come... This is Gareth Gates with Any One Of Us open brackets stupid mistake second of seven top 10 hits that gareth gates had just between 2002 and 2003 the second of four number ones that bore his name but his only number one that wasn't a cover version his hit making career started after he was voted runner-up in the first season of pop idol that was in february 2002 this single was recorded in stockholm all of its songwriters and participating musicians and producers are swedish Two of the songwriters, they've worked on five other UK number one singles from the same era, Westlife, for Will Young and for Shane Ward. This was a major European hit. It reached number one in Sweden and in Norway and in the Netherlands. Right. We have had a load of nice songs here, but he's been very respectful. We've had polite conversations about them. I fear that we are about to diverge now into our normal camp 
-hmm. we're going to take sides here, I think. And I'm glad you've come to me first. So let's start with the facts. The fact is, this is one of my all-time favourite pop records ever. Trev's got his hand over his mouth. He didn't know this. This is what I'm saying. I'm going to pause a minute while Trev gets a bucket. (laughs) This is where I think we're going to diverge. So it's easy to forget in late 2001 just how big that first season of Pop Idol was. Darius, the whole Darius thing. Jessica Garlic, who ended up coming third at Eurovision. Rick Waller. Remember Rick Waller? Oh, yes. And then obviously came down to the final two, Will Young, Gareth Gates. Now, to all intents and purposes, I was team Gareth like literally all the way through. I thought, if you're trying to find a pop star, that's what you need. Like, we're talking about Donny Osmond. We're talking about teen idols and Donny Osmond. Is Trev dead? Trev is actually sinking out of view. He is red of face and visibly vibrating. Don't let that put you off, Nick. Do carry on. He's on mute. Right. So, um, so obviously, it was massive. And then, because it was so massive, it took over the pop charts in 2002. So it started with Will Young, obviously, won the show. He got first dibs. So they released Evergreen, which was, I think, the second biggest selling song of the 2000s, I think. Just absolutely mammoth. So that was number one in March 2002. It was knocked off number one by Gareth Gates' version of Unchained Melody, which was obviously also massive. Then Will Young had a number one in the June of that year with Light My Fire. Then Gareth came along and had this, was three weeks at number one in July and August. Then Will and Gareth teamed up in later 2002 with The Long and Winding Road, Suspicious Minds, double A side. That was number one in October. And then obviously Gareth Gates then had another number one in 2003 with the Kumars. So they essentially just took over the entire pop world for a year or so. Now, make of that what you will. Some people will think that's just the worst thing that could possibly have happened because in the pre-Simon Cowell era, someone came along and we manufactured a couple of pop stars. Will Young, he's worth saying, has sustained an incredibly successful career on the back of winning a TV talent show in a way that very few people have to quite the same degree. Interestingly, also, the team behind Any One of Us also wrote Evergreen, the Will Young song. So they obviously made quite a lot of money out of this. Uh, and That's My Goal for Shane Ward, which was also an X Factor winning song. So they got quite a lot of money out of this venture either. They also wrote Britney Spears, You Drive Me Crazy, and Kelly Clarkson, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger, which is an absolute banger as well. So it's difficult to know where to start with this because I loved Gareth Gates and I I love this song. I just think it is just an incredibly terrific example of that kind of Swedish early 2000s production. It's a weird subject matter for a young man to sing about how he's bodged his relationship, essentially, and it could happen to any one of us. Well, you know, we're not going to bring up Katie Price there, are we? But um, <laughs> I, I made a stupid mistake, stupid mistake. I am not putting those two facts together, but one could read into that if one wanted. His debut album, obviously, was massive, What the Heart Wants to Say. But I was listening to it the other day. It's rubbish. Whatever they came up with to give him to do on it, it's just the quality of it is terrible. It's got a couple of great singles, a couple of half-decent cover versions, and the rest of it is incredible filler. So perhaps that is why he didn't really sustain his career much past 2003 really onwards i know he's been very successful and he's been in musical theater and stuff but the album itself is really poor the songwriting quality sounds like a lot of whatever they had lying around the bins in the studio that they couldn't give to anybody else 
as far as anyone of us is concerned, it's got a lovely video. He's trying to solve his girl problems while running around Venice. It's great. It's actually the 56th biggest selling single of the whole decade. Any one of us. It was the sixth biggest selling song in 2002. Now, I'm having a milestone birthday this year. So I've been collating a playlist of literally just an evening's version of my favourite songs of all time, just so I can indulge myself by playing it on a speaker in the pub where we're having the party. And this is on it. And I don't know what more I can say to that, that it's I love it enough that it has made the cut for that list. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to hand over to an alternative opinion. Well, do you know what? I think I'll go next (laughs) because I think I might be the bridge between (laughs) Nick and Trev here. Um, I'd forgotten about Gareth Gates and Katie Price. But I remember a quote from Katie Price, who has never had a filter, and she was on the record was saying, yeah, they had it off while Katie Price was by some distance pregnant. And apparently she said to Gareth at the end, oh, you must have touched his head. Well, that's quite complimentary to Gareth, isn't it? It's very complimentary to Gareth, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Yes. Not with his hands via another route. Mike, we understood what you okay, meant, mate. good. Yeah. Fine. Right. Uh, Nick, you are not alone in loving this. The very respected pop music writer Peter Robinson, who wrote for the NME for a lot of its final period and still runs the site Pop Justice, when he made his best single selection of 2002, he actually listed a top 212 singles of 2002. Any One of Us by Gareth Gates was his number one. So I did know there was a subsection of the population who rate this very highly indeed. Okay, I was similarly massively invested in the first series of Pop Idol because we'd not had this format before. It was the first time. The thing is, I didn't yet understand how the whole thing worked. And I remember the very first episode when they're all queuing outside the venue as became standard and they're picking out hopefuls from the queue seemingly at random and they pick out Gareth Gates and then he goes and does his audition. And after it, I was saying to friends, do you know, there was that guy with the stutter. I think he was quite good. I think you want to watch that one. I think he could do quite well. I was blissfully unaware that I was falling from the narrative that is always created by the producers of these shows. I thought I'd been this really savvy A&R man in front of the TV. And of course he got through to the final two and it was preordained. I was firmly team Will. I voted for Will Young in the final, but I thought Gareth looked like he had a lot of potential if placed in the right hands. However... He wasn't really placed in the right hands because he was signed up by Simon Cowell and he was obliged to record yet another version of Unchained Melody. Last time that had been in the charts, it was the best-selling single of 1995, recorded by Robson and Jerome, who had also been signed by, guess who, Simon Cowell. More cover versions followed. That comic relief cover of Spirit in the Sky with the Kumars is every bit as bad as Mel and Kim's Rocking Around the Christmas Tree from season one. I will say his duet with Will Young on The Long and Winding Road, that does gain a partial reprieve from me because it is quite nicely and quite tenderly sung. Their voices meld well together. They're a similar register. You do get some occasional faint hints of emotional connection with the song. This one is different, though. So Simon Cowell, 
has shipped him off to Sweden to one of the several Swedish powerhouse hip factories that were cranking him out at the time. And I think the result is a perfectly serviceable piece of early noughties pop. I think there's a little bit of ABBA in the arrangement and the construction. There's a whole lot of I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. I did quite a lot of searching because I was certain I was going to find a mashup of I Want It That Way and Any One Of Us. No mashups exist. Really surprised about that. I think it's very well crafted. It's an absolutely massive earworm. It's been in my head for the past week. Easily Gareth Gates' best single, but it is still way too vanilla for me. How about you, Trev? I really, truly believe that music's subjective. And if I ever offend anybody with my opinion, uh, I don't mean to, I, I think the whole point of music is that people like different things. And it would be very difficult to talk about music completely in an objective way without expressing personal opinion he said as a disclaimer we're waiting <laughs> i mean that because I, I know this will mean a lot to some people out there and i don't want them to listen to this and go, go what's this dick slagging off my music who is this dick uh, i'm just no one so it don't matter but if you like hair gel i urge you to watch this video if you like tv singing competitions I urge you to listen to this. And if you like men singing songs about infidelity and rather than simply apologizing, saying things like, well, I'm only human and anyone would have done it. Or she was putting it on a plate. I'm hardly to blame. I urge you to read the lyrics to this unmitigated piece of shite. <laughs> we should all listen to this and cringe. At least modern bilge, which I think there's lots of, isn't actually getting bought. It's just getting streamed. And if you like something that's a bit crap and you're just streaming it, then yeah, whatever. People like this so much, they went out and paid their money for this. People wanted to own this. People wanted to put this on a playlist at their birthday party that they would put on the pub where they're going for their birthday party. I've got absolutely nothing against Gareth. I've heard him in interviews and things like that. He seems like a lovely guy. And here, I absolutely think he's just doing what he was told. But what he was told to do is gash here. Uh, there's lots of uh, manufactured artists out there who I think are really good. Uh, One Direction, Girls Aloud are the two that spring to mind in a case for the defence for competition winners. But this does less than nothing for me. I think if it had been about something else, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But the message of this song is, oh, she fell onto it, Your Honour. <laughs> I could hardly be blamed. Like, whoa, what was that to do? I'd had a few beers. Hey, get over it, love. All right? No. No, no. No. No, no. I was one of those people that spent their money on it and bought it. Obviously, you're, you're putting it on a playlist in your pub, and that's great. That's absolutely great. It's that's that's why we have music. It's you know, it means different things to different people. And I, I, don't, I have no problem with people liking anything. I just really don't like this. I was in my twenties at the time. If that mm. helps in any way, <laughs> late twenties. Well, very late twenties. Very late twenties. I just had a flicker while Trevor was talking. I thought, God, maybe he was singing this song about Katie Price, because which one of us wouldn't want a romp 
with Jordan, right? And then they remembered, oh yeah, he doesn't write his own songs. So I, I dispelled that notion. You didn't relate to this yourself personally then, Nick, because I remember with um, The Never Let Us Slip Away, and then there was a, like a bookend song to that later. You didn't make a silly mistake in 2002. No, I don't think so. I don't think I had a personal connection with it anyway, other than just I absolutely loved Gareth Gates. And, mm. you know, I wasn't a massive fan of Unchained Melody for all the reasons that you say. I mean, you know, we, we didn't really need another version, did we? And then this came along, and I, I just thought it was magnificent. Just a great pop record, but... I think eventually Gareth Gates did get a hold of his own career. I mean, it all went pear-shaped. I think in 2006, he fronted a documentary called Whatever Happened to Gareth Gates, in which he had quite a lot of input. But then he kind of got into musical theatre. He's done quite a lot of successful musicals. He made some very sound investments and has done all right that way. He still pops up. Um, he's quite an advocate for sort of speech therapy because he famously had a stutter and he's now worked to get over it and he's passed that knowledge into other people. He's opened academies. I think these are academies that are designed for people with similar speech impediments using some of the money he's earned from his rather canny investments. He's come out smiling and an awful lot of products of the Simon Cowell hip factory you never hear of again, and they meet very sad fates. But I think Gareth, I respect him for having come through smiling and successful and useful. When you think of the products of the Simon Cowell pit factory, an awful lot of them have come out really, really badly. It's almost as if Simon Cowell don't give a shit about them, uh, and it's just a vehicle for him. But he seems like a great guy. Yeah. And I, I imagine the further away from Simon Cowell he is, the better his stuff is, if you like. He did co-write the stuff on his third album. The lead song, Changes, is really nice. It didn't do particularly well, but it is a really beautiful song. I think I remember Changes, yeah. Uh, no, it's not the Donny Osmond and Kelly Osmond version, Changes. It's not that one. <laughs> I, I think if you ask people, there's probably quite a residual affection for Gareth Gates yeah. in the British public of a certain age, I would say. With the opportunity he was given, I think he's done better than most people have. My main issue with TV talent shows is it's build them up to knock them down. They don't give a toss about the individuals involved and it's not the individual's fault. They're just having a crack at it, but it's the amount of them who end up on the scrap heap of life after having the sun blown up their backside and being told the world's going to fall at their feet. And then oh, it's not worked out, sod off. But this was the first time we'd seen this kind of knockout stage talent contest. It was a more innocent time. We didn't realise we're all being gamed, as became apparent later in the decade. So I think that, again, is why we can retain some affection for more of the people that were involved. The absolute nadir of that whole thing that you talk about, Trev, is that you only have to read the Lucy Spraggan story. Oh, uh, and the, what she, I think, rightly perceives as the lack of care that she was given during an extraordinarily traumatic period where she was on the X Factor really kind of reinforces the point that you're making there. Truly, truly grim story, that. Um, yeah. That's an awkward segue into the next decade. <laughs> Let's hope there's a big happy banger to finish off this show with, eh? Yeah. Let's hope there's a big happy banger to finish this show off with. Let's find out as we careen into... Black 
This is Spectrum, open brackets, say my name, by Florence and the Machine. Third of four top ten hits that she's had from 2009 to 2012. It was her first single to top the UK charts, and that was boosted in part by its instrumental version, which was heavily used as background music for the TV coverage of the London 2012 Olympics, which is round about the time it got to number one. This was a Calvin Harris remix of an album track that had come out the previous year. The album track simply being called Spectrum. The suffix Say My Name was added for the remix. Florence then had one more number one. That was as a featured artist with Calvin Harris, who was the main artist. Altogether, she's had 10 top 40 hits between 2009 and 2015. But she bobbed back into the top 40 again this year with a reactivation of Dog Days Are Over, because that was featured on the soundtrack of the new Guardians of the Galaxy film. Albums-wise, she's been a lot more successful in terms of chart positions. She had four number one albums and a number two album between 2009 and only last year. So earlier on, uh, I was talking about the importance of a remix or of the production on a track that you hear. However you prefer to term it, I think this is a great example of how not massive changes can completely change the direction of a tune. So the original of this is Ace anyway, the album track that you were referring to. But that's, it's like worthy, expressive, expansive, slightly artsy, vaguely indie piece And then Calvin Harris turns up, twists a few knobs, puts a banging donk on it. And suddenly this is a euphoric jump up and down festival banger. And I think it's a masterclass in doing that. It is fair to say that this song's second season has firmly arrived at the moment. This is a big tune again off the back of Dog Days Are Over from Gardens of the Galaxy. DJs are going, oh, what else can I play by Florence and the Machine? Let's get this on. And there are nights that I play the original version of this, and there are nights that I play the Calvin Harris version of this, and both of them absolutely fly out. So the song was already good, and then Calvin Harris has come and just put a remix on it and done what remixes, I think, should do. There are some remixes that completely take a track and take them to bits, and you can't tell the original from it. Whereas this is, and you could play them side by side, it's not a world apart, but it is a world apart. Um, I think sonically it's brilliant, it's banging, but it's rich. The remix complements her voice rather than drown it out. The song is all about her voice, even though it's pounding, admittedly commercial, club music. And given the death, really, of nightclubs as arguably governments conspire to keep us all at home where it's far easier for us to consume and far more convenient for them. The fact that club bangers are still big is remarkable because in lockdown, we were still listening to club music and we weren't going to clubs. There aren't many clubs left and yet club bangers still survive. Whether or not that will be the case in 20 years time, I don't know. But even out of the club, it's got strong radio life. It's got enough for you to listen to it. I think it's really very, very good pop music. It's interesting that you say that they used it for the Olympics because I've I've spent the last two weeks thinking, has this been used for the football? It feels like the sort of song that they would use as the theme to Monday Night Football or something, but I don't think it has. Um, Interesting that you were saying about taking an artsy pop song and putting a 
what do you say a banging donk on it uh, i love <laughs> i love that for i still don't know what it is but i do love it um and it reminded me in this in season one we talked about giant the rag and bone man and it's sort of the same thing isn't it they've taken his song and stuck a banging donk on it and turned it into a club banger so it reminds me a little bit of that it's the same philosophy I have paid Florence and the Machine absolutely no attention, essentially, since she slash they arrived on the scene. And I don't know whether it's because I didn't like the first thing of hers that I heard, probably. I, I think it was probably a voice. I, I wasn't sure about that slightly floaty, ethereal nature of the singing. So I haven't really paid any attention. Obviously, you know the hits, right? You know, you can't avoid some of the, the big singles and stuff. So I just ignored it i so like do the other day went and had a listen to it back and actually found myself liking a lot more of it than i thought i would i think part of the problem is is that uh, you know occasionally you have a blind spot of what is clearly a brilliant song but you just hate it and you got the love is up there for me i just i don't understand the attraction of any version of you've got the love and I think maybe because that was an early single of hers, that's just what put me off it. I know, unpopular opinion, again, everybody will have one. Everybody will have what is a classic track, but that they hate. And You Got the Love is just happens to be one of mine. You're right about Dog Days Are Over. So the needle drop of Dog Days Are Over in Guardians of the Galaxy is one of the greatest bits of music use in a film of recent years done by somebody who knows how to use music in a film, not just to put it over the end credits or something. And the kids and my daughter and the whole new generation of people love it. And obviously it drove it back into the top 30 almost immediately and stuff. So that is phenomenal. This, I think, is great. Like you say, it's a shouty, euphoric, uplifting club banger. I think the production is great. Calvin Harris is just a... He's either a genius or he just has an uncanny knack of being right on trend at the right time and knowing exactly what to do at any given moment. I knew it. I hadn't listened to it. It's not the sort of thing I would choose to listen to, but I actually really enjoyed hearing it again. I think it's a really uh, uplifting piece of music, and actually it has encouraged me to go back and start listening to a bit more Florence. So hooray. Hooray for that. Yeah, if you're taking an extended deep dive into 2010's pop, as we are doing over these episodes, you're never very far away from Calvin Harris. His name seems to crop up in passing just about every single episode. And here he is again, four episodes after he last showed up with Rihanna, remixing Florence, helping her achieve the best-selling single of her career. Having ranted at some length about the evils of EDM in season one, I have to report that I have, to some extent, gradually been softening my stance as EDM-related stuff does keep coming up, and I can't keep pretending that it all sounds the same. Although I personally prefer the original album track, Calvin Harris does not wreck the song. The dance beats don't overpower it. The drop isn't half as cheesy as most drops of the EDM era. Rhythmically, it offers something a bit more complex than your regular four to the floor. I think it's a bit more than the banging donkeys put on this, actually. So that's all good. But then there's Florence. And I am afraid to say I have major issues with Florence. I've seen her live. Yeah, this has been a familiar theme this episode. I saw her live on the NME Shockwaves tour in early 2009. She was bottom of the bill beneath White Lies, Friendly Fires and Glas Vegas. Now, at that stage, she hadn't yet had a top 40 hit. 
fact, Dog Days Are Over had just dropped out of the charts after peaking at number 89. Obviously, it did better later on. But she'd just come third in the BBC Sound of 2009 poll. She was very much seen as a tastemaker's buzz act of the moment. And although she was first on at something like 7pm in Nottingham Rock City, it was a well-received set. I've checked the review that I wrote and I finished my section on her by saying, if she can rein in the ditzy bohemian act and carry herself less like an art student and more like an artist, then her future should be assured. See, that was my problem with her. She came across as this dilettante art student who was like doing music as a project rather than a seriously committed artist with a vision. Since then, obviously, she's gone stratospheric, but despite all that, I've never fully bought into her shtick. On the video for this track, her hair is styled in a way that reminds me of early Toya Wilcox, and I think there's a comparison to be made between Toya and Florence. They're dramatic, they're grandiose, they're theatrical, but ultimately, to me, all that bombast does feel a bit hollow. But my main problem with Florence is her voice, which I find almost unbearable to listen to for more than a few minutes at a time. There's an awful lot of bellowing and caterwauling and not a lot of interpretive finesse. She's also dangerously pitchy at times. Now, that isn't always a bad thing. I do respect the fact that she has chosen not to correct her pitchiness with autotune. But the combination of the pitchiness and the bombast, it's just oral torture for me. So much that when I was taking my deep dive through her hits, I had to abandon it about two thirds of the way through because I just honestly, I couldn't stand to listen to another second. It was doing my head in. The only Florence track that I have ever genuinely liked is the Jamie XX remix of You Got the Love, which I think she absolutely massacres in her original recording. I love that song to bits. Hated what she did. Couldn't bear it when that Glastonbury, which seemed to pop up on every single stage over the weekend, honking You Got the Love over whichever unfortunate band was stuck on stage with her. But that Jamie XX remix, he had the good sense to chop around with the vocals to such an extent that he manages to take most of the sting out of the vocal. Maybe he should work with her more often. That would be my tip. Right, I'll go back to being nice again. I like the initial lyrical concept of Spectrum. That's because I think you can read it as a hymn to diversity. Since the song was recorded, the word Spectrum has come to signify all manner of diversity, from neurodivergence to gender conformity to sexual preference. And in that respect, I think Florence was ahead of her time. However, for me, the lyrics lose their way with the second verse, where the symbolism ends up obliterating the meaning. And I could do without the chorus centering around us being invited to usher in diversity by saying Florence's name. It's all a bit Messiah complex for my liking. So although the track is not totally devoid of merit, wouldn't go as far as to say that I actually like it. Had she read your review and abandoned the art student thing in favour of becoming an artist and then went stratospheric? You couldn't rule that out. Some up-and-coming artists did read my reviews. They get back to me. I reviewed Clean Bandit about a month before Rather Be was released. And it was a favourable review, but I made some constructive criticism. And they tweeted me back. Thank you. That was really useful. You've given us some things to think about. So maybe she did. Maybe she tried to rein it in. Maybe she couldn't. What did, what did you say? Add some violins and Jess Glynn. And they went, <laughs> oh, right, we'll do that. 
I said that Rather Be sounded like a hit in the making, and then they released it. And I said they really ought to introduce their vocalists because I had no idea what they were called. And I said, you don't want to put two slow ones in the middle of the set because everyone loses interest when you're basically a dance act. I was very helpful. Nick, I thought you were going to come out this. Can you name me any other groups that are a woman's name and a group that are not actually a woman's name and a group because it's actually a solo female act? Can you do that for me, Nick? Um, yes. I have two. Oh, so there's a current artist called B and Her Business, which I don't know whether that counts. Ah, that wasn't on my list. All right, okay. Two acts that I think you like, if that's any help. Um, well, there's Marina and the Diamonds, isn't yes. there? Yes. Presumably. It's just Marina, isn't it? Correct. Um, go on. Christine and the Queens. There are no Queens. Oh, Christine and the Queens. Well, depending on what he calls himself. Uh, yeah, when I said with a female vocalist, I've forgotten that Christine and the Queens has transitioned. So a female name and a non-existence backing group is what I should have said. Shall we do some voting? Diana Ross and the Supremes. Oh, no. You're going to tell me the Supremes were real? <laughs> well, after the Supremes became Diana Ross and the Supremes, the Supremes did not record the songs on which they were credited. It was Diana Ross and other backing vocalists. So in a way, it's not quite as conceptual as Marina and Christine and Florence, though. That was the Florence and the Supremes, wasn't it? Digression. Let's do some voting. Nick, let's start with you. Okay, I'm doing this on the hoof again, and I still haven't really decided. So minus one bottom goes to... It's got to go to guitar tango by the shadows. I still can't take it seriously. If I were to happen upon Strictly one night and they were doing, a, obviously, a tango, it sounds like the sort of thing you might hear, might it? Anyway, hmm. uh, in the zone, I'm going to put uh, Donny Osmond's Puppy Love. i just not as affectionate as I thought I was going to be towards that. And I all, I'm also going to put Florence for the 2010s, I think. I do think I do share a little bit of your... I didn't want to be quite as rude about her vocals as you were, but I think I did hint at that in why I said I didn't like it. But now you've said that you hate them. I think I will say, yes, that's probably my problem with it. Third place for the 90s. Hey, Luther. Hey, Janet. Best things in life for three. Second place, uh, Yazoo, 1980s. Absolutely great. And just streets ahead. One of my all-time favourite songs, Gareth Gates, Any One of Us. Thank you. Very easy number one for me this time. Luther Vandross and Janet Jackson. Absolutely one of my all-time favourite dance tracks. If it had been the new Jack Swing version, it would have been meh at best. Thankfully, it wasn't. Easy second place. Yazoo, don't go. I'm going to put The Shadows in at number three. No problem putting Donny Osmond in the Met zone. And then I've really struggled between Gareth and Florence. I've ended up deciding it by if I was stuck on a desert island and I had a choice of one track to play, and it was either the Gareth Gates or the Florence and the Machine, which track would I opt to take with me? Well, I think I'd opt to take Gareth Gates with me because I just couldn't stand Florence honking at me on a desert island with no other company. So Gareth Gates goes in the Met Zone, Florence and the Machine get the minus one points. Trev. Right. All of these are interchangeable. It's like a cigarette paper between Florence and Yazoo first and second. I'm going to go Yazoo. I do think it's more timeless. And I'm inclined to think, you know, Florence at the moment just sounds very fresh. Will I love it so much in a year's time? I don't know. But Florence is comfortably second. There is a huge gap. Miles. And then it was 
Luther and Janet or Puppy Love. And I think it's Luther and Janet. It's very well done. Uh, and whilst there's nothing wrong with Puppy Love, it's, it's a bit schmaltzy. And then the worst, right now it could go either way. There is a possibility that in three years' time, I will be enjoying that Gareth Gates song. It's bizarre as that sounds. There's lots of, you know, cheesy pop that like years later, I'm suddenly like, oh, what a great song this is. Whereas <laughs> I would be amazed if in a few years, I mean, I would be amazed in a few years time if I'm enjoying The Shadows. The Shadows is very well done, but what is it? The Gareth one is so bad. I might end up going, oh, actually, this isn't all that bad. I think it's really, really unlikely. But yeah, I'm going to go worse The Shadows. If I was stranded on a desert island with guitar tango by The Shadows, I'd hit myself on the back of the head with a coconut and then go and lie in the waves. You'd be like, how long have I been here? It must be weeks. Hang on a minute. I need to change the record. It's not even been three minutes. <laughs> I've managed I managed to grow a beard in that time. I've sent a bottle off into the... I've given this football a personality. <laughs> All right. I failed to convince you about the shadows. The shadows are indeed in last place. Minus one point. Donny Osmond's in fifth place. A sea of mez. Not sure we've ever had three meh in a row for any track, but he's managed that. Fourth place, Florence of the Machine, one point. Third place, Gareth Gates, three points. Second place, Luther and Janet, five points. Current winner, Yazoo, seven points. That's just what we think. Now it's over to what you think. You can help shape the demographic process in the usual ways. Chief amongst them, the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. You can also vote via Twitter or X and via threads on both of those. We are at Which Decade Tops. You can search for us on Facebook and you can vote that way. You can email us at whichdecadeistops at gmail.com. You have until 6pm on Tuesday, the 29th of August to make your minds up. For now, it's goodbye from Trev. Ta-ra. Goodbye from Nick. Bye-bye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?